morning. It's good to see you all again. Thank you. I'll have to apologize to the folks who are new and haven't been to a service before. If you've seen one UU service, you've seen one UU service. They're all different. Um, in honor of International Women's Day, most of my quotes today will be from women. And our opening words today come from Audre Lorde. It's not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. Got something a little different for you folks this morning. This is a guided meditation. This morning we're gonna be talking about difference, privilege, and power. And I'll invite you to explore with me the grounding of our movement and how the convergence of multiple issues around difference, privilege, and power informs our advocacy as Unitarian Universalists. To begin, we'll be seeking wisdom from recalled personal experiences. And to do that, I ask that you look at the people on the right and the left of you. And during this meditation, I'm going to suggest that you may want to physically reach out to someone nearby. Uh, and we need to make sure that's okay with them. Consensual touching. <laughs> Don't have to, you can, but you might want to. If any of your neighbors is not comfortable with your touch, please respect their wishes. That's the elbow, right? Um, touching can, doesn't have to be with fingers. And we enter into a time of meditation. Please relax your minds. You may close your eyes if you'd like. Relax your bodies. Allow whatever thoughts come into your mind to come and to go. And I want you to recall, I want you to recall episodes in your life of learning to be white or black or brown, learning to be male or female, gay or straight, learning to be a person of a certain religion, of a certain faith, of a certain community, learning to be American. Can you think of a time when you were a child, when you saw someone who was different from you, different skin color, different hue, different, uh, hair color, different religion. What was it like? Did you play with that other child? Were you allowed to play with the other child? What did your parents say? Were you, were you told that you can't associate with someone because of anything? They're not like us. They think differently. 
they look differently, they worship differently. If you are identified as male, were you told you can't play with the girls? The girls told you can't play with the boys? What did that feel like? You're told you can't play with him. He's a sissy. Or he has some other thing, some by other names. That person's a Jew. That person's a Muslim. That person's a foreigner. Who was telling you this? Your parents? Other relatives? How did you feel? What did you do? Did you talk to them? Did you get to know them? Did you play with them as a child? How did you feel about the people who were telling you you couldn't associate with them? Were you afraid? Were you sad? Did it seem right to you? These are some of the earliest times in which we're told how to act, how to be, who to be with, who to associate with. Sit with those feelings for a minute. If you felt bad about it, remember how you felt, but let the feeling go. You're different now. You're all grown up. You can choose who you want to be with, how you want to be with them, who you want to learn from, who you want to associate with. You're now free to do that. And as you finish this time of meditation, breathe deeply and remember we are in community. We are not alone. Come back to this place and open your eyes when you're ready. How is that? I have a reading from a book by Thandeka, who was a professor at one of our UU-affiliated um, seminaries, Meadville Lombard. And she described this in her book, Learning to be white. Thandeka, by the way, is African-American. She described her book with these words. This book is about race, money, and God. It begins with personal accounts of the ways in which Euro-Americans became white, then describes the economic predicament this has left them in. 
and ends where rec the recollections begin, with dark revelations of feeling before memory and beyond white. This book is filled with personal memories by Euro-Americans of small, seemingly inconsequential defeats. Each defeat, however, when acknowledged, produces the disconcerting feeling that something about one's own white identity is not quite right. This sense of misalignment with one's own identity could serve as a definition of shame. And that is the place where our story begins. I am not free. I am not free. What, you say? You? The old saying was free, white, and 21, right? For me, that could also have included the privileges that go along with being male, straight, Anglo, able-bodied, middle-class, educated, professional, and so forth. Oh, and American. Let's not forget how privileged we are to live here. I share some of these privileges with many others in this room. But people who are different from me in some ways don't share all of my privileges. Yes, I have this, all of these privileges, yet I am not free. Let me explain. First of all, let's talk about privilege. According to social, sociologist Alan Johnson in his book, Privilege, Power, and Difference, which I highly recommend, the trouble around difference is really about privilege and power. The existence of privilege and the lopsided distribution of power that keeps it going. The trouble is rooted in a legacy that we all inherited. And while we're here, it belongs to us. It isn't our fault. It wasn't caused by something we did or didn't do. But now that it's ours, it's up to us to decide how we're going to deal with it before we collectively pass it along to the generations that will follow ours. In other words, racism and other forms of oppression cannot be maintained without a system of privilege. And as Johnson says, privilege is a feature of social systems, not individuals. People have or don't have privilege, depending on the system they're in and the social categories other people put them in. To say that I have race privilege says less about me personally than it does about the society we all live in and how it's organized to assign privilege on the basis of a socially defined set of racial categories that change historically and often overlap. The challenge facing me as an individual has more to do with how I participate in society as a recipient of race privilege and how those choices oppose or support the system itself. According to Harry Broad, professor of sociology at Northern Iowa University, we need to be clear that there is no such thing as giving up one's privilege to be outside the system. One is always in the system. 
The only question is whether one is part of the system in a way that challenges or strengthens the status quo. Privilege is not something I take in which I therefore have the option of not taking. It is something that society gives me. And unless I change the institutions which give it to me, they will continue to give it and I will continue to have it, however noble and egalitarian my intentions. So racism, classism, sexism, and other isms consist of social patterns of exclusion, rejection, harassment, discrimination, and often violence. These patterns are pervasive throughout American society, and they continue today despite changes in individual attitudes towards people of color, different gender, etc. Those who fail to see this often complain about having to be politically correct, avoiding comments and jokes that are insensitive, remembering to include women, African Americans, Jews, or Muslims, or other minorities in activities and decisions. Civil rights laws made everyone equal in America, right? Why can't blacks or women just get over it? Why do they have to be so defensive? We should see these comments for what they are. The longing for a time when white men only had to care about what other white men thought or wanted. According to Johnson, it's not necessary or even desirable for white Americans to feel guilty about actions of, of whites. But it is important that we act. It's not important to affix blame for past wrongs. It's important to make conscious choices to change the system. Those who think of themselves as being on the sidelines must see themselves as participants, nonetheless, of an oppressive system of privilege. Privilege is created and maintained through social systems that are dominated by, centered on, and identified with privileged groups. A racist society, for example, is white-dominated, white-centered, and white-identified. It doesn't mean it's full of people who feel animosity or malevolence towards people of color, though they exist. We don't have to think sexist or racist thoughts in order to participate in a system through which sexist or racist trouble happens. Participating is all it takes to involve us. It is also all it takes to give us the potential to be part of the solution. For when we see how we're connected to the problem, we can also see how we can make a difference by choosing differently as we participate in making systems happen. Since privilege is primarily rooted in systems, such as families, schools, and workplaces, change isn't simply a matter of changing people. People, of course, will have to change in order for systems to change. But the most important point is that changing people isn't enough. The solution also has to include entire systems, such as capitalism, whose paths of least resistance shape how we feel, think, and behave as individuals, how we see ourselves and one another. If we're going to keep capitalism, it's got to change. So how do we get privilege? In his book, Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote to his son about people who believe they are white. 
Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined, indubitable feature of the natural world. Difference in hue and hair is old. But the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes which are indelible, this is the new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up, hopefully, tragically, deceitfully, to believe that they are white. Thandeka, the professor I quoted earlier, states, no one is born white in America, and describes what aptly happens in her aptly, uh, what happens next in her aptly named book, Learning to Be White. And in a later book, Soul Work, Anti-Racist Theologies in Dialogue, which I also highly recommend, She says that although no one is born white, quote, our children are born with an innate ability to relate and bond to others. Children thus have to learn how to internally destroy their own ability to relate and bond with those who are not acceptable to their parents or authority figures. Only then can they learn to deny what their feelings affirm, the importance of open-hearted engagement with others. Indeed, they have to be carefully taught. She recounts stories from people who recall the abuse inflicted on them as their parents, peers, and the rest of society taught them to be white. The same can be said of other aspects of privilege where young people learn how to inter interact with people with differences from them. That's why I asked you to explore childhood memories in the guided meditation. What did we recall from that exercise? Did we experience any discomfort? Guilt? Shame? It may not be guilt over our own treatment of the others, but usually it's shame at being separated from our authentic selves. The child who wanted to accept everyone, but learned to accept that those others should not be treated as people of our own race, gender, class, sexual orientation, religion, or nationality. This is why Thendika says that white America's first racial victim is its own child. So what can we do about it? Another contributor to soul work, Dr. Rebecca Parker, president and professor of theology at our other UU-affiliated uh, ministry school, Star King, tells a story about traveling through rural western Pennsylvania during a rainy spell and finding evidence of recent flooding when she rounded a corner to find the road covered with water. It was rising fast, and only then did she realize that it was happening here and now, and she was trapped in her car. This is what it's like to be in white in America, she writes. It is to travel well ensconced in a secure vehicle, to see signs of what's happening in the world outside the compartment one's traveling in, and not realize that these signs have any contemporary meaning. It is to be dislocated, to misjudge your location, and to believe that you are uninvolved and unaffected by what is happening in the world. 
How does she say we can change this? First, we must cultivate an ongoing awareness of our situation. This may involve remedial reading as we seek the perceptions of those who experience depression as well as those who have worked to oppose it. We also need to recognize the harm that has been done by cutting ourselves off from the whole world. Our upbringing did not teach us the whole of American history, only the white side of it. And growing up in Atlanta, I can tell you that's the truth in the South. This deprived us all of the rich diversity of experience that is our national heritage. Until we understand the point of view of the master and the slave, we are not whole Americans. In the words of early 20th century activist Sarah Harrington, while the legal, material, and even superficial requirements to eradicate racism are well known, its psychological and more deeply spiritual requirements have been persistently neglected. Namely, the oneness of the human family. It is this principle of oneness that needs to be the driving force behind the struggle of uniting the races. If racism, sexism, classism, and other forms of discrimination are reinforced and protected by social structures, it's our duty to dismantle them. At the state level, that's the work of the 23 state action networks that you use have built around the state nationwide. In our state, that means the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Maryland, which I was happy to be a founder of in 20, 2005. And since then, we've pursued three or four issues before the state legislature every year, often with significant success. After 2016, however, an outpouring of activism, I wonder why, allowed us to expand to seven issues with a task force for it, each. You use all of the state to become informed about important issues, participate in the democratic process by testifying, attending rallies and press conferences, and advocating with their lawmakers. For example, we've supported a series of successful measures to curb smokestack and tailpipe emissions and set targets for renewable energy. Before the Affordable Care Act we passed, that was passed at the federal level, we moved health reform forward to cover more people, and I'm afraid now we have to work to protect its important provisions in our state as the federal government is dismantling it. And we're having some success. We defended human rights of the LGBTQ community and worked to make marriage equality a reality in our state. In 2012, we even helped convince voters, the ultimate lawmakers, to support the referendum on marriage equality. Then we worked to expand anti-discrimination laws to include our siblings in the trans community. We successfully helped to restrict and then repeal the death penalty. Since the Sandy Hook shootings in 2012, we've worked to enact meaningful restrictions on guns, and that continues to this day. And in 2012, we helped convince voters to support the referendum, uh, the law providing in-state tuition to undocumented youth. This was Maryland's Dream Act. Since then, we've worked on a variety of immigration issues, including expansion of the Dream Act, 
that only became law over the governor's veto when it was overridden this January. Our Economic Justice Task Force has helped raise the minimum wage twice and establish the right of workers to paid sick leave. Now we're trying to set up an insurance program to fund people who can't afford to take off with family leave. Our criminal justice task force has helped limit the use of restrictive housing, solitary confinement, folks, for pregnant inmates and minors in prison, and to shift law enforcement towards the issuance of citations for minor offenses and away from the uh, fraught practice of forcefully arresting every offender. It's been a busy 15 years. Over these years, we've made a change in our approach to advocacy that's directly related to difference, privilege, and power. We came to realize that all of our priority issues have something in common. Each bill, each change in the law requires us to confront systems that use deceit, manipulation, force, and oppression in order to preserve power and privilege. These structures of privilege and oppression are interrelated and must be addressed with a coordinated campaign to dismantle these structures in our state. From this perspective, we see that our efforts involving environmental, economic, and social justice and the, uh, must be part of a coordinated approach based on UU values and the com personal commitments of our members, individuals, and congregations. So instead of pursuing each of these issues separately and independently, we promoted a unified, faith-based vision of a more peaceful, just, and sustainable world. Let me illustrate using some of our priority issues. Economic justice. The capitalist economic system that created the high standard of living and created a large, robust middle class in the mid-20th century has been manipulated by wealthy elites often using government tools, to benefit the obscenely rich at the expense of everyone else, reversing many protections given to workers through early government and union action. We're working to assure that workers have a living wage, fair compensation, paid sick leave to care for themselves and loved ones. From a larger perspective, we can see that business leaders in every state have had great success convincing legislators that the state needs to be business friendly. What's the motto for West Virginia and now Maryland? We're open for business. This has created a bias against legislation aimed at improving the lot of workers, consumers, and the public at large. I believe that states that embrace this business-friendly attitude are in danger of becoming societies that resemble the company towns of the Industrial Revolution, where residents are so dependent on the dominant businesses that they never speak out on their own behalf for fear of job loss and financial ruin. Think of the coal towns, steel towns. Our support for specific legislation, therefore, requires working on the larger issue of changing the attitude of lawmakers towards greater recognition of worker rights and needs. After all, the workers actually produce what the capitalist sells and profits from. And as a faith group, our moral voice has a greater impact 
than that of unions, which are seen by many lawmakers as merely self-serving. When we say this is morally right, we're heard. Environmental justice. These same business forces have worked to thwart efforts to combat climate change in order to continue making profits from extracting and burning fossil fuels and keeping us all dependent on them for needed energy. However, there is a strong and growing environmental movement that's slowly overcoming their opposition in states across the nation. We've been a leader with the Maryland Climate Coalition for over a decade. We were the first and only faith group on their board. And we provide the moral voice for communities suffering from environmental degradation and for the interdependent web of life, which doesn't happen to get a vote on what humans do to it. Finally, to address racial justice, the focus of this sermon, we support measures for criminal justice reform and police accountability. In this case, the structures of privilege and oppression are themselves multifaceted and intertwined. The Baltimore uprising in April 2016 showed the level of frustration with the social and criminal justice system that has been building over the years and demonstrated that we must take an active role. Uh, Reverend um, David Carl Olson of the Baltimore Church was walking the streets with black ministers in northwest Baltimore. Many UUs have urged us to support the Black Lives Matter movement, and we have, but it would be a mistake to say that we have adopted Black Lives Matters as a legislative priority. There is no bill that would make Black Lives Matter. The fact is that racism is much broader, and we're only focusing on a small but important part of it when we deal with criminal justice. Granted, it is the abuse and killing of African Americans by police that's triggered protests and outrage and significantly raised awareness among whites and the existing power structure. But before that, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, also confronted us with the oppressiveness of the criminal justice system of which the police are a part. In 2015, we worked to pass a measure that created a Justice Reinvestment Coordinating Council, bipartisan, that um, is, provides a statewide framework for sentencing and corrections policies to further reduce the state's incarcerated population, reduce spending on corrections, and reinvest strategies to keep the public safe and reduce recidivism. These efforts focus on the kinds of issues raised in the new Jim Crow, particularly those related to assisting those already victimized and imprisoned in the criminal justice system. It passed with bipartisan support and signed by the governor. Prison populations have been reduced. However, we're also working on issues that became the focal point of Black Lives Matter. That same year, we supported a bill from the Senate and House leadership to enact 23 recommendations including modifying the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights to facilitate timely investigations of police misconduct instead of shielding officers, which had been its pattern, and to make the process more transparent. It put our, passing it put our state on the path towards dealing with systemic problems with police community relations. But unless law enforcement truly serves and protects communities of color, we are perpetuating a system whereby police act as an occupying force 
sent by white governments to control people they view as uncivilized, predatory, and violent. And I've personally heard this from police. Our efforts are ultimately aimed at raising awareness and promoting the discussion Michelle Alexander advocated. She told us that nothing will change unless America has a frank and serious discussion about race. We hope that pushing the issue of police accountability will help in that effort, and our support for criminal justice legislation, while important in itself, is ultimately a means towards the address of, uh, end of addressing the larger structural issues of race and privilege. So we see what we can and must do. We know that each of us has some kind of privilege and that we have all been taught to accept our privilege by treating those without privilege as the other. We have learned not to notice our privilege and not to recognize the harm that's been done by cutting ourselves off from the whole world from the whole story of our history. Our upbringing has inhibited our ability to see and to be our authentic selves, to fully embrace the diversity of our community and to celebrate the unique gifts of everyone, to see that we are truly all one. It's time we broke this cycle, ending the abuse of our children. We know that it's our moral duty to confront the structures that perpetuate this system of discrimination and privilege. And we must engage others in the discussion. Even if we can't change the structures that support and protect privilege right away, we must talk about the problem. Every discussion advances the cause of justice and bends ever so slightly the arc of the universe in that direction. Are you ready to acknowledge your privilege? Can you see that it's up to us to decide how we're going to deal with this mess before we collectively pass it along to generations that will follow ours? Do you personally agree that unless I change the institutions who give privilege to me, they will continue to give it and I will continue to have it no matter how noble and egalitarian my intentions are? Do you want to continue to accept the status quo or are you ready to be part of the solution? Are you ready for liberation? Collective liberation? If so, say it with me. I am not free. I am not free. It's a benediction. We've got closing words from Lila Watson, an indigenous Australian or Murray visual artist, activist, an academic working in the field of women's issues and Aboriginal epistemology. May they guide us as we go forth from this place, taking with us the support and love of this community as we begin the important work of dismantling the structures of privilege and oppression, thereby freeing us all. Ms. Watson said, if you have come here to help me then you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Thank you. As you go out into this world, take a little that you might have learned, whatever wisdom you've found here, whatever sense of community out into the world, 
Live boldly and with love. Go in peace.